Welcome to the Trucking Market Update on the State of Freight Podcast, brought to you by FTR, where we share timely transportation intelligence with you on a weekly basis. The Trucking Market Update is hosted by FTR's Vice President of Trucking, Avery Weiss. As Avery presents the information in the podcast, you can follow along and review the graphs and indicators by downloading the PDF or PowerPoint of the presentation from our podcast landing page. A link to the PDF and PowerPoint is available now at www.ftrintel.com podcast. From there, you can also find past episodes and downloads for the Trucking Market Update, as well as the weekly rail market update with Todd Tronowski and much more. That link again is www.ftrintel.com podcast. Welcome to FTR's weekly Trucking Market Update. I'm Avery Weiss, Vice President of Trucking. This is episode 62 for the week of May 4th, 2020. Before we start, a reminder that you can download a PDF with graphics related to this discussion at www.ftrintel.com podcast. You can also download a PowerPoint presentation that includes images of those same charts you can use in your own presentations. The big news to discuss this week is the monthly jobs report for April, but I want to cover a few other things first because, well, frankly, you might not listen to the whole podcast otherwise. In a sign that we are beginning to at least think about a day where we start to return to normal, there have been a few recent regulatory developments in trucking that I that have nothing to do with COVID-19 that I'd like to talk about. I'm not going to go into detail on any of them because we have lots to cover today, but I do want to mention them so that you are aware of the developments if you are not already. First, FMCSA, or the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, has launched a permanent crash preventability determination program to replace a pilot program that ended last year. The agency has expanded the categories of crashes that can be challenged as not preventable and has streamlined the review process. It also will exclude those crashes deemed to be not preventable from the safety measurement system and the CSA program um, by, uh, uh, by connection to that. FMCSA posted the details in the Federal Register on May 6th, and you can find the information on their website at www.fmcsa.gov regulations notices. The second item is a proposed rule that we knew was coming eventually. FMCSA proposed to require state driver's license agencies to downgrade CDLs and commercial learner's permits for drivers who show up in the drug and alcohol clearinghouse as testing positive for drugs without completing the return to duty process. The agency also proposes to retain in the clearinghouse database a record of a driver's citation for driving under the influence, even if the driver ultimately is not convicted for the offense. FMCSA posted details in the Federal Register on April 28th, and you can find the information online at www.fmcsa.gov slash regulations slash rulemaking. If you are involved in trucking, you probably have at least read about those first two items. I bet the third one got past you, though, but I think it's interesting, and it's arguably a game-changer if it were to happen. On April 20th, FMCSA posted for comment an exemption application filed by safety technology firm Pronto.ai, Inc. on behalf of its interstate motor carrier customers. 
Now, what Prano wants to do is allow drivers who operate commercial motor vehicles equipped with the Copilot by Pronto Advanced Driver Assistance System, or ADOS, and the Smart Drive Video Safety Program to drive up to 13 hours during a 15-hour driving window instead of being limited to the 11 hours in a 14-hour window under the Hours of Service regulations. Now, if this exemption were granted, I believe it would represent the first time that FMCSA has provided hours of service flexibility on the basis of a carrier adopting safety technology. Comments on this exemption application are due May 20th. The easiest way to find the Federal Register notice is to search Google for the phrase pronto.ai and then the word FMCSA. Um, okay. Well, it was fun to talk about things that are totally unrelated to COVID-19, but now it's back to reality. Although we will begin by talking about the truck spot market for the weekend in May uh, 1st, which was week 17. And as the COVID-19 related data goes, this will be the most reassuring thing we'll probably talk about in this week's podcast. Total spot loads remain far below average, but they rose nearly 22% from volumes the week before. Spot metrics in week 16 had already indicated that spot market demand had bottomed out, as we talked about last week, and week 17 data suggests that a recovery has begun, as we would have expected given that several states are taking their steps uh, toward reopening. Now, despite the significant bump, in loadings, total load availability remains historically weak at just 55% of the five-year average for week 17. The total broker-posted rate per mile, excluding fuel surcharge, was higher for the first time since week 11, rising five cents. However, total uh, spot rates remain about 35 cents below last year and nearly 45 cents below the five-year average. Refrigerated spot volumes increased the most of all the segments, rising nearly 38%, following a 33% increase the week before. Load availability in refrigerated has recovered so much that in the past two weeks, it now stands just slightly below last year and the five-year average. Refrigerated rates also are rising. They rose 20 cents in week 17, adding to the six cent increase the week before. Rates have now recovered to within five cents of last year's rates for the same week, although they remain nearly 25 cents below the five-year average. Dry van's 20% increase in spot loads was the first week-over-week increase since week 11. Dry van load volume, which is barely half of the five-year average volume for the week, remains at its lowest level since early 2016, except for weeks 15 and 16. Although dry van rates also were up, they rose by less than two cents a mile and are more than 20 cents below last year and nearly 40 cents a mile below the five-year average for week 17. After holding essentially flat in week 16, flatbed volumes um, jumped more than 30% in week 17. However, flatbed volume is still only about a third of what it was just seven weeks ago, and it's just 41% of the five-year average volume for the same week. Flatbed rates were up for the first time since week 11, but only by one cent. Flatbed rates are 48 cents below last year 
and 55 cents below the five-year average. As discussed in last week's podcast, truckstop.com and FTR have introduced the COVID-19 Truck Freight Recovery Index, which assesses trucking's response and recovery based on pre-pandemic levels. That index uh, reflects more or less what we've been talking about, but it does so in a much more uh, graphically simple way. Um, the index, by the way, is available at www.ftrintel.com slash coronavirus. Okay, moving on. The petroleum market seems to have stabilized after the wild ride it had been on in the second half of April. We have now had uh, four uh, straight days when the price of a barrel of West Texas Intermediate Crude closed above $20 a barrel, and we had not seen that happen since April 14th. Now, if this is getting you concerned about fuel prices, understand that $23 or $24 a barrel is still a really low price for crude. And it's hard to imagine a dynamic where the price goes much higher in the near term. Meanwhile, diesel prices continue to fall. The national average price for the week ended May 4th was $2.39.9 a gallon, which is the lowest price since October of 2016. Over the past 17 weeks, diesel prices have plunged 68 cents a gallon or 22%. Okay, so here we go on the economic indicators. I would say brace yourself, but at this point, I'm not sure anything really surprises us anymore. Usually, we start with unemployment claims, but I thought I would make that a lead-in to the April jobs report. Instead, let's look at the ISM Manufacturing Index. So the Institute of Supply Management's closely watched ISM manufacturing index for April fell to 41.5, which is the lowest reading since April 2009 in the early stages of the Great Recession's recovery. Now, again, this is the lowest level in you know, 11 years, and yet it is still deceptively strong because it's skewed by a very strong reading in the category of supplier deliveries. If we look at the components that matter most for transportation, those would be production and new orders, those plunge to very low levels of around 27, indicating a very negative environment in the near term for carriers relying on manufacturing for their volume. So the rest of the time, in this podcast, we'll be talking about the labor market. First, let's look at the latest data on initial claims for unemployment benefits. The Labor Department on Thursday reported nearly 3.2 million initial claims for unemployment insurance benefits on a seasonally adjusted basis for the week ended May 2nd. Approximately 22.6 million Americans, which is 15.5% of all people covered by unemployment insurance, have been receiving unemployment benefits for at least a week. Both the total and the percentage are the highest ever by far. Although initial claims have been lower than the week before, in every week since late March, they remain very high and are only slightly lower than the week ended March 21st. Over the past seven weeks, seasonally adjusted first-time claims have totaled more than 33.5 million. As we have noted before, the difference between seasonally adjusted and unadjusted employment claims is notable when we're talking about numbers this large. The actual number of unemployment claims filed over the past six weeks is about 2.7 million lower than the seasonally adjusted total. 
Okay, so now is the time to talk about the economic indicator that we knew would be inconceivable, except for the fact that after seven weeks of unprecedented numbers of unemployment benefit claims, it might actually not sound as bad as you would imagine. As we discuss the April jobs report, I'm going to throw out some benchmarks first so that you that when you hear the latest numbers, you will appreciate just how bad they truly are. Okay, so the most jobs lost in a single month ever, at least since 1939 when the government started tracking payroll data, had been 1.96 million in September of 1945, just as the just as World War II was ending. That month also held the record for the largest percentage drop of 4.8%. The April job losses shatter both of those records by an enormous margin. The U.S. economy shed 20.5 million payroll jobs on a seasonally adjusted basis in April, and that is a 13.5% reduction in employment in a single month. The highest unemployment rate recorded in the data, which goes back to 1948, had been 10.8% in late 1982. Again, the April unemployment rate blew well past that and stands at 14.7%. By the way, although we informally call this the April jobs report, technically the report covers changes in employment levels from around mid-March to around mid-April. Now, normally that distinction is, is inconsequential, but suddenly uh, when we see uh, economic changes as sudden and extreme as we saw in response to COVID-19, timing makes a world of a difference. So the March jobs report did not capture the worst two weeks of March. On the other hand, the April report likely covers the worst four weeks of job loss during the entire COVID-19 lockdown. Anyway, combined with the revised March estimate of 870,000 lost payroll jobs, the COVID-19 pandemic, which ended nearly a decade-long streak of monthly job growth, already has claimed nearly 21.4 million U.S. payroll jobs. And that does not include the legions of sole, sole proprietors, independent contractors, and so-called gig workers who are not counted in the payroll data. While we don't have precise numbers of those non-payroll workers who've lost jobs, we can roughly estimate those figures by subtracting the number of payroll jobs lost from the total change in employment levels that are captured in a separate survey known as the Household Survey. That survey, which is used to uh, calculate the unemployment rate, by the way, uh, estimates broad employment metrics for the U.S. population, regardless of whether they are payroll workers or not. Now, I suppose I could walk you through the math, but I'm sure that you will appreciate, especially in an audio format, that it would be better if I just give you the bottom line. And that is that uh, if you take this approach, we would estimate that another 4 million on top of the uh, 21.4 million payroll jobs uh, have been lost, or at least work equivalent to a job has been lost for sole proprietors, independent contractors, and gig workers. Um, now, back to the establishment survey, which is what generates the payroll job figures. Digging into what we saw um, there, 
14.4 million of the 20.5 million jobs lost come from just four broad sectors of the economy that represent the four sectors with the greatest number of job loss. Those are leisure and hospitality, and that includes restaurants, education and health services, professional and business services, and retail trade. Manufacturing contributed another 1.3 million lost jobs, and construction was down 975,000 jobs. Just one loan industry added a substantial number of payroll jobs, and that was general merchandise stores, including warehouse clubs and super centers. That sector added a surprising 93,400 jobs. And interestingly, while those stores, which do sell food, of course, saw a big increase in employment, food and beverage stores, which basically are grocery stores for the most part, actually shed 42,000 jobs. And I, I found that, frankly, a little surprising that they actually shed jobs or, or at least shed a significant number of jobs. Um, and it wasn't that they had added jobs in March for restocking and then, and then those jobs went away. They didn't add any jobs in March either. The employment level for food and beverage stores was down about 3,000 in March. The only other industry to add more than 1,000 jobs was couriers and messengers, i.e. parcel and local delivery, which added 1,800 jobs. Americans need or desire to buy goods online during the COVID-19 lockdowns clearly is one reason for this. And that, of course, leads us into a discussion of trucking. For higher trucking shed 88,300 jobs, which is a drop of 5.8%. Those are not, surprisingly, the largest single-month drops in trucking on both a percentage and a raw number basis. The closest competitor in the data, which starts in 1990, was April 1994 as a result of a major Teamsters strike. In that month, jobs fell by 49,700, which was a 4.2% reduction. Now, other than that outlier, the biggest drop before April was 26,000 jobs, which was a 1.9% reduction in January 2009, which was really the depths of the Great Recession. And while the dynamics of the COVID-19 crisis and the Great Recession are not really that comparable, it is worth noting that the 5.8% drop in employment in April is more than the total drop in the five worst consecutive months of the Great Recession. So that's how big a deal it is. Now, figuring out what all this means for capacity is tough for a number of reasons. First, these are total trucking job losses, not just drivers. Now, it is true that a large number of those clearly will be drivers because about 60% of tr uh, trucking payroll jobs um, are drivers, according to our analysis. But we don't know exactly how that breaks down. And we also have no visibility into the private fleet side of the business. That is just simply not captured on a monthly basis, quarterly basis, and it's only uh, captured really on an annual basis during uh, BLS's occupational um, survey that it does. Um, now, in addition to those companies, we also don't know how many leased and independent owner operators we have lost. Now, we certainly presume that a very large share of them are idled, but being idled is not the same as being out of business. 
especially in this strange time when there are no jobs really to be had anywhere. So it's not like you're going to quit being an owner-operator to go take another job because there's not another job to take. It actually may be a few months before we really get a solid understanding of where we stand on capacity for these reasons. Okay, so that's it for the week. Let's recap. Spot market load volumes are starting to recover. Crude prices have stabilized above uh, $20 a barrel. Diesel prices have fallen by 22% since the beginning of the year. The ISM manufacturing index really is worse than it seems. The unemployment claims uh, that we're seeing have now totaled more than 33 million in just seven weeks. April was the worst month for the labor market in U.S. history. And for hire, trucking shed nearly 6% of its workforce. So that's it for FTR's Trucking Market Update, episode 62 for the week of May 4th, 2020. As always, you can download PDF and PowerPoint files accompanying this discussion at www.ftrintel.com podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we hope you will join us next week. for this week's trucking market update on the state of freight podcast you can find more publicly available state of freight content and download the pdf and powerpoint of today's presentation by going to www.ftrintel.com podcast ftr is the leader in freight transportation forecasting in north america providing consistently reliable reports for trucking rail and intermodal transportation as well as providing demand analysis for commercial vehicle and rail car For more information about the work of FTR, visit www.ftrintel.com or call us at 888-988-1699 to find out which publications will best support your business.